This is Dave Moss of the Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. All aboard, and join us for Open Door Philanthropy. Today's the first ever nautical episode, as I've been invited by my good friend Steve Wozencraft aboard his yacht, known as the Waterford. I head down to the docks to interview Steve, and I think back on all the years I've known him, and all the cool things we've done together in the world of philanthropy. I first met Steve at the State Department during a tour for young philanthropists, where Steve was our volunteer guide. We later worked together on the organizing committee of the first ever Nexus Global Youth Summit. Uh, and then after that, I went to go work at an organization called Atlas Corps as their first ever partnerships manager. Steve joined their board of directors. We had many fundraising and outreach events on board the Waterford during those years. I've since left the organization, but I've stayed, tup- uh, stayed in touch with Steve. Uh, and I just found out that he's recently been named chairman of the board of directors of Atlas Corps. I look forward to talking to him about that. In addition to running Atlas Corps' board, he's involved with the John D. Evans Foundation, named for his partner, C-SPAN founder John Evans. That foundation supports social justice work, LGBT causes, AIDS vaccine research, environmental protection, technological innovation, education, and the arts. I'm very excited to be back on board the Waterford, it's a lovely boat, and to catch up with Steve. But before I do, let's Google his name, learn a little bit more about him. Steve Wozencraft is Executive Vice President of the John D. Evans Foundation and has spent the last 30 years of his career working to extend value, opportunity, and spread justice and love around the world. He is a frequent contributor for the Huffington Post and other news sites, as well as a convener of policymakers and thinkers regarding what social justice is and can become. Stephen is the former president of the John O'Donnell Company, a New York financial development firm established in 1966. That company specialized in helping NGOs and not-for-profit organizations. As president of the John O'Donnell Company, he oversaw the development of organizations, helping them build capacity and raise over a billion dollars collectively. He has served on the boards of organizations around the globe and has assisted causes like the Boys Club of New York, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens, the William Jefferson Clinton Presidential Foundation, CGI, the Harlem Boys Choir, the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, Empire State Pride Agenda, Kids Peace, and numerous others. Steve's bio actually goes on and on quite a bit further than that, but I think we'd rather get to the interview. Uh, you get the idea, though. Steve has worked with some of the most powerful people in the world and advanced some of the most important causes of the past few decades. He's a great guy, and so without further ado, let's dive more deeply into his life and work. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. <laughs> Steve, uh, thanks very much for inviting me on board the Waterford. Uh, let's uh, get right into it. Um, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? That's a really big question. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in San Diego. Uh, I was a child of somebody who was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot. And this grade school student probably didn't spend more than a year in any one grade school. Uh, uh, it was a quite diverse upbringing. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, where was your so you, you, you every year you moved? Yes. Uh, where was your where was your favorite place? Or was it? Or do you not have a favorite place when you're like that? I mean, I lived in just the same place my entire time, so it's hard for me to think about. I don't think I really did have a favorite place. It was just you know constant adapting. Hmm. And how do you and how do you do that? Uh, as a child, yeah, it's it's difficult. Uh, you know, for me, I, I, I like to say that that's one of the biggest educations I ever had was learning how to go into a room of strangers and adapt very quickly. Yeah, and I think that's really how I've gotten to where I am today. Uh, you are quite. I've seen you go into a group of strangers and adapt very quickly. So yeah, uh, yeah. that makes sense. Um, do you, uh, uh, as a child, do you remember giving or uh, philanthropy type activities or? Giving back it. Yes, I mean I was raised in the uh, the church, the LDS church. Uh, so that church has a very long history of philanthropy and mm-hmm. taking care of its own and 
helping those who are in need. So I think that was one of the, the big things that helped me sort of move the trajectory of my life towards that. Uh, they're tithing? Is that... Tithing, yes. I remember my tithing settlement meetings where you had to bring in your W-2. and Really? And uh, the, the church would, you at the end of the year, you would take your W-2 and they would look at it and say, well, you know, you didn't give your 10%, so you need to up it a little. Uh, and then the church got sued, I believe, and they can't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, that's very interesting. Was it, so did the 10% have to go to the church? Or yes. Were they, okay. Yeah, so it was called tithing settlement. So you settled your account, basically, if you didn't pay your full 10%. So, but you could you could go in there and, and you could show, you could have 10% of donations to things that aren't the church. They would still want. This was for the church. Yeah. yeah. And, but then they, uh, what do they do with, what do they do with it? Well, the church has a very vast organization called Desiree Industries. So they own fishing uh, canneries, they own orange groves, they own chicken farms. Sure. Uh, they are the largest landholder in upstate Florida. They're building, you know, 500,000 acres of uh, community up there. So the, the church is, is uh, a very vast organization. It's mm-hmm. not just a religious organization, it's sure. an industry. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, do they support uh, other causes, groups, nonprofits? Do they make grants? I don't. I don't think so. Hmm. You know, as a child growing up uh, in somewhat poverty, the church was very helpful for us. They did everything from give us money to clothes to food. Mm-hmm. Desiree Industries has its own brand of food, or at least at the time it did. I don't know if it still does. I haven't been a member uh, for a while. But uh, they're very helpful for the people in the church, and I think they help within communities that they also live in. Mm-hmm. Mormons uh, are really good about helping others. But they're also really good about judging others. <laughs> uh, so you were uh, you received services from you could, oh, yeah. they gave you food and such. Oh yeah, oh, that's very that's that's very interesting. That must have that, that must have uh, contributed to who you are, right? Does that make you want to give back? I I think so. Yeah, uh, I think you know that whole thing of seeing a community come together around someone, and also. There was an expectation that uh, you were going to, no matter if you were wealthy or poor, that you were still going to contribute. So I worked at the fish cannery. I, you know, did things for Desiree Industries and for the church that were helpful. Um, and that was just part of uh, the culture. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, in Waterville, Maine, uh, in a wealthy family, mm-hmm. but uh, Waterville's a very poor town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things I like to say is you can be, you can have all the money in the world to live in Waterville and it really doesn't make it. It doesn't make that much of a difference, because uh, uh, you know what are you gonna what are you gonna what are you gonna buy? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, but uh, you know, my fr- lots of my friends were you know they they were relying on um, uh, food stamps and other services of that sort. And even though it wasn't really a part of my life, it did seem like it was a, it was a part of my community's existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it's very important for for me. Um, some of my friends that didn't have that have a very hard time understanding. Certain that they understand philanthropy, but certain aspects like particularly social service stuff, or like that a family might need canned food to, to eat. These things are maybe intellectually understood, but not I think really understood. Uh, so thanks for telling me about that. I think I've always you know you are you're a very grounded person. I think that's probably probably part of it. And it would be very easy to you know living on a fancy yacht to mm-hmm. not be grounded you know literally and <laughs> also spiritually. Um. Well, the fancy yacht is just a thing, right? <laughs> that, you know, that, uh, you know, wealth manifests itself in many different ways. And mm-hmm. uh, we're only stewards. The yacht will be here long after I'm dead. So I'm, you know, it's a it's a great way to get around and it's a lovely place to be. And, and certainly uh, part of our philanthropy is doing events on the yacht for the organizations that we support. Mm. And it does sort of disarm people sometimes so that they are, more open to discussion and, you know, looking at the philanthropic aspect of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, other than the, than the church, mm-hmm. uh, were there other people uh, that sort of taught you what philanthropy was and giving? Uh, yes, your parents? absolutely. Um, in a very uh, real way, my first partner, uh, life partner in, in New York, who I had a long-term relationship with, owned the John O'Donnell Company. His name was John O'Donnell. And uh, he had built a business in the 60s around helping nonprofits raise money. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that was his business, and he was extremely successful. In the sixties, yes. Is that relevant? That, that's that, that's would, would that have been a pretty new thing in the same? Yeah, now that's quite common. He was a pioneer. He was the first, probably. Really. Uh, the firm was started in nineteen sixty six, and uh, he was a wonderful writer. Could write really well, and built this business uh, over the years to be the largest. There was, at the time, uh, we had the largest repository of foundation information huh. of any other organization. And this is pre-sort of computer technology. Um, so a lot of the organizations that the, the firm worked for were global. There were offices all over the world. And uh, it did some really good work. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's very interesting. Um, is there anything uh, about yourself uh, so that talked a little bit now about your uh, influences. Is there anything about you now that is different from your influences? Uh, so uh, just, to, just to explain, I, I learned philanthropy from my grandmother, who mostly because she was a, um, uh, a Jew who made it through World War II, mm-hmm. uh, was mostly focused on supporting uh, Jewish studies causes and, 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 uh, and institutions and, and also Holocaust memorials. Uh, up the road is the U.S. Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum. She has her name on the donor wall and also on the list of survivors, right. um, and uh, I, I find that stuff very important. But I don't. I would. I don't think I would make a gift to uh, to a Holocaust center. Um, I, I support. I support other things. Are there things about uh, that you have found for yourself that you support? That um, sure. I, I you know I uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to support a lot of different things. Uh, you know, my philosophy of philanthropy wasn't taught to me. It was just sort of something that evolved as I, I grew. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I have my name on walls and doors and things of that nature. Um, in general, that's not something that I typically ask for or want to have done. Uh, it's something that's usually offered to you or mm-hmm. someone wants to do it. Um, so, you know, the different types of philanthropy that I do, uh, it runs the gamut. You know, uh, I'm always just asking people, how can I help? And I've had to curtail that a little bit because, you know, if you ask that question enough, you're going to get a lot of answers where you're going to have to help people. So (laughs) defining some of the spaces that I like to work in and that are easier for me uh, is very helpful. But my network of people that I can call on and the organizations that know me and trust me and understand the kind of work that I do it's pretty vast, and that's very yes. helpful. Yes, I like to say that there, there's always more money in the Rolodex than in my bank account, without a doubt. It's it's true for everybody. Uh, Bill Gates has Carlos Slim and Warren Buffett's cell phone numbers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and um, so, uh, uh, that, and that's very interesting to me uh, with all the stuff I'm working on now. Uh, but um, so when you uh, uh, when you're deci- when you when you can't fund something, but perhaps you still like it. Uh, how do you how do you approach that? Because it's not really a no, right? It's it's no, I can't give you money, but well, I, I sometimes can't help you these ways. sometimes it's deliberate. Yeah. Uh, sometimes me just writing a check isn't the best thing for the organization. Agreed. Uh, when I give my money, you get me as well, and that's a, a that's a really big deal for me. Is mm-hmm. I'm not just writing checks to people. So uh, if it's the Laguna Beach Community Health Clinic, where I give ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year. I'm still very involved with what that clinic does, and it's it's near and dear to my heart because my nephew used it when he was younger, and then I saw the need in the community to the work that I do with the State Department mm-hmm. and the Global Equality Fund or the diplomatic reception rooms. You know, they get nice donations, but also I sit on both of those committees. So, end of the day, they get money, but they get me too, and. Mm-hmm. It's good for me because then I can see what's being done and I can understand that my investment in these organizations are really making a difference. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of which, do I understand correctly that you've recently become the board chair of Atlas Corp? Yes, I have. You know I used to work there, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> I remember you working there. It's a great organization. And I want to thank uh, Selma for helping to schedule. Uh, she's sitting in the corner of the room mm-hmm. now. And if she were to talk, the microphone wouldn't pick it up. But uh, thanks very much for the help. Selma's an Atlas Corp fellow from Turkey. And for the folks at home that may not, I don't think I've talked about Atlas Corps on the other episodes. Uh, it's like the Peace Corps, but um, it goes in the opposite direction. We recruit the best NGO talent in the world, and we place them uh, here in the U.S. 
And my job there specifically was I talked to I only I talked to nonprofits who had never hosted a fellow before, and explained to them the value of being able to recruit from the entire world, which some people understood right away, and other people would it, it took more convincing. Uh, you've been involved for a while. I think you were I think possibly longer. You might have been involved before I started working there. Yes. Um, she asked me when I uh, when I worked there, and I, I don't remember. I'm too old now to remember <laughs> what year things happened and such. Uh, but how, so, how long have you been involved with Atlas Core? Uh, I was just talking to Scott Beal, the founder, about this the other day. I think in it was 2008, 2007. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time. Good for yeah, you. Yeah, ten years. Um, and uh, uh, what is it about Atlas Core that makes you support them over others? Uh, I see Atlas Core as being one of the greatest soft power assets that we have right now, especially with the new political environment that we're in. Mm. You know, Atlas Core was designed to bring uh, emerging leaders to the U.S. to work in nonprofit NGOs uh, and then go back to their countries and in civil society build organizations or go into government or do whatever it is they do with the perspective that they've gained by coming to the United States. Mm. <clears throat> and for me, watching how the alumni from Atlas Core have been able to move and grow is just as powerful as what we're doing for the organizations that hmm. they come in to serve. Yes. So they make an impact here with the organizations they, they work at, and then they make an impact when they go back. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's interesting. So you, you the, the, for you, it's more of a international uh, building of, of civil societies abroad, training these folks, sending them abroad. Yes. Uh, for, it's, that's very interesting for me. I mean, I, I'm, I was always aware of that, and I would even mention it sometimes when I was trying to sell. Uh, but, you know, f for me uh, and I, my general cause is that I want to support the nonprofit sector in the U.S. Uh, I'm, I'm all for the nonprofit sector everywhere, but we can only do so much, right? And so I always think about it like this is just a great opportunity for nonprofits here in the U.S. to access talent that they couldn't otherwise. And that's most of it for me. And it, it just goes to show two people, uh, both very handsome, can support the same organization for, <laughs> for, different, <laughs> for sure. different reasons. Sure. Um, and, and in different ways, right? You know, you, uh, you're probably not going to go work there, right? Uh, or maybe you could, it is, it is fun. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, you decided to join the board and, uh, I believe you were, um, I, uh, I saw you at the gala last year, yes. uh, which worked out very well and, um, uh, support those things. Yes. Um, uh, that's, that's terrific. I hope you'll continue, uh, to support Atlas Core. I've had a number of jobs and, uh, and the ones that I've left, most of them I talk about it in the past tense, and I usually don't say we. I find, though, that when I talk, even though I left Atlas Core, I think it's been five years, I still say we uh, when I talk about I'm not on the board. I don't work there. I but, have no formal but I still say we when I talk about it, which I find very interesting. Well, the Atlas Core family, again, is very vast. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, Selma's a, a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the energy and the love that they extend to people is just incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the best... Uh, part of my dealing with Atlas Core is being around the fellows mm -hmm. and seeing such diverse backgrounds coming together and no conflict. And mm -hmm. it's like watching a group of children. And these are substantial people in their own right. These are not just you know people who want to come and get a job in the U.S. These are people who are educated, mm -hmm. who have done something in their countries already and are uh, have other opportunities but chose to use Atlas Core as a way of maybe furthering their career or, or expanding their horizons. Uh, have you ever had the opportunity to do an airport pickup for Atlas Core? I pick everybody up for Atlas Core. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it was very, the first, the, it was a very interesting experience for me. I would um, have to Oh, learn. I see what you're saying. When you go when, to pick when up they the first, fellows. Yeah, when they, start, oh, when they first gotcha. arrive in the country at the yeah. airport, yes. uh, someone has to go pick them up, right? And the volunteers and staff members take turns and stuff. And I've, picked, I've gone to the airport, I think, six or seven times to pick up various fellows. Uh, which when they first told me I had to do that, I resisted very hard. No one wants to go to the airport to pick up anybody. <laughs> uh, but I should not have. Those ended up being some of the some of the more interesting experiences of my life, uh, including there was one fellow who I believe we're not supposed to name because he was placed from Syria, uh -huh. uh, and uh, and I and I believe we ended up placing him back somewhere somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, we weren't going to make him go back to to Syria, but so we picked him up from the airport, uh, and that week we were, was training week. We were conducting the training that week at Sixth and I Synagogue, which is mm -hmm. uh, which is my synagogue. So not only did I get to meet this young young Syrian activist at the airport and be this, the first American he met, I also got to bring him to synagogue 
for his first time. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, where there were, you know, we had we we had to do some counting. There were uh, in that class uh, in the room. There were seven different faiths mm. uh, being trained all together at my at my personal synagogue. Yeah, uh, and uh, that was that was awesome. Uh, well, Alaskor brings people mm-hmm. from all backgrounds together, and they put that stuff away. And it's really interesting to to watch. So, mm-hmm. you know, there there are biases that people have accumulated over their lifetime, but Atlas Corps breaks down a lot of that really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think so. It's a, it's, a, it's really interesting stuff. Do you remember how you and I met? Uh, we met at the White House, I think. It was actually the day before at the State Department. You gave a tour. Oh, that's right. So Jonah Whitcamper asked me to give a tour uh, of the diplomatic reception rooms, which yes. I'm on the committee of the Fine Arts Committee at the State Department, which is in charge of that. And Are you I still had, on that committee? I sure am, yeah. And we went up, and you all got a, a pin, yeah. a State Department pin. I still have this it. This is a long time ago. Yeah, I saw the largest rug I've ever seen. Yeah, it's one of the largest. <laughs> it is. is it one of the world's largest rugs? It is one of the, yeah. It is. It's a, it's <laughs> well, a, it's really neat up there. It's that I, I, I don't have the entire tour, but uh, I'm a big fan. Of, I'm from New England and mm-hmm. a big fan of Paul Revere. And also, like, we had... Um, some Paul Revere uh, imitation furniture in my oh. in my house growing up, and that's the if I remember correctly the largest collection of it's it's probably the one of the one of the top collections. I wouldn't say it's the largest, but it's one of the most significant collections of American uh, furniture and art mm. that has his, historical importance. So mm. you have a desk that was uh, Thomas Jefferson's desk. You have the Treaty of Paris desk, where the Treaty of Paris was signed and our nation became a nation, mm-hmm. uh, and you have. Dolly Mattis's dining room table and chairs. So there's all kinds of objects of that nature uh, that are there. But those rooms are used for our country's diplomacy. That's where the right. president and the secretary of state do their meetings. And uh, uh, why is it important to have such nice stuff in there for to have these meetings? Well, I think it's a little bit uh, like the philosophy of bringing people on the yacht. You know, you bring people in who have different backgrounds and you disarm them a little bit. Uh, you know, the, those rooms were not always like that. Uh, Clem Conger, who was the uh, curator for, uh, in the beginning, built those rooms out in the, in the 60s because the State Department, if you've ever been in the building, it's not a pretty building. But those rooms Other are, than the parts of the seventh floor. No, that's not, true. Not seventh and eighth floor, yeah. Uh, those rooms are some of the most elegant, wonderful rooms that you'll ever uh, go into. For sure. And it's all done with private money. And uh, so when Secretary Clinton hmm. uh, became uh, Secretary of State, uh, they were talking about how to keep these treasures. And uh, I helped, and among others, uh, raise an endowment of $20 million to keep them kept up. And so, great. yeah, no, so that, that's, you know, it's a great part of our country's history that not a lot of people get to see. Uh, yes, uh, I, was, I was very fortunate to go on that. As very interesting group uh, that we got to tour around, mm-hmm. uh, just to give some acknowledgments. And that's also where I met I met Mary Galetti yeah. uh, on that same tour for the very first time. She is now uh, one of the funders of the Unfunded List, yeah. and I assume it's because of the great experience that you created on that tour that allowed us to connect in a way that eventually led to that grant. So, so a soft thank you <laughs> to you there. Well, I love hearing that that's how you and Mary led. You know. As you go through your life and you introduce people, mm-hmm. uh, and those people are doing really good work and doing great things, it's really wonderful to see how they connected. And sometimes just the act of putting them in the same room together can make things happen. So mm-hmm. that's wonderful. And also that day was with it was the day that Liesl Pritzker and Ian Simmons met. That's right. And they are now married. That's true. And there is another. Which again, credit must all, yes. must all go to you for that. Yeah. Well, I, I will take credit. And there's a couple that they just celebrated their fourth anniversary that met on the boat for an Atlas Corps event. Yes. And they got married. So. Yes, I actually. I'm two for two. I was helping organize that one. Ah. Uh, and uh, I I uh, I added Richard. Richard was a friend of mine. Research Generation that suggested to put him on the list. Yeah. And I was uh, to Panata's. Uh, what was the joke we said? Uh, their host. Uh, what do they call? Uh, your host parent, host family, local, local yeah, local ambassador. I was Deponitz's uh, local ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, lo- I, they were just here, and it, you know, watching both of them together is, yes. is wonderful. Yeah, they are wonderful. I actually am now sharing an office with Deponitz oh. uh, at the WeWork White House location. 
Okay. Uh, which you should come by sometime. It's a great opportunity to look down on the president. Physically. <laughs> uh, it's a really cool space. I didn't know you were a comedian, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, if, as long as they're laughing, right? Yeah. The, um, so... Uh, that uh, the reason we were on that tour uh, is because the following day was uh, this was not it was not called Nexus at that time it was the White House Summit on Next Generation Philanthropy or that's right something like that are you uh, do you continue to be involved in those sorts of philanthropy convenings and other than bringing them onto the yacht and stuff are you going to larger philanthropy summits and oh, sure. networks and stuff yeah I, you know the Clinton Global Initiative was something that I was really involved with in the very beginning and maintained. Sure. You know that relationship. My relationship with the Clintons has been wide and vast over the many years. Uh, so uh, CGI was a, a big part of that. You know, and I did a lot of convenings and meetings, uh, larger meetings at the White House and during the Obama administration. And you know, you go to conventions. I go to TED. Mm-hmm. I love TED. That's fun. Uh, so you know, that's part of what you do. Mm-hmm. You need to be. Uh, you know, even in today's world where we can connect with anybody on the planet over the computer. I do find uh, even perhaps more important now uh, to be able to make in-person uh, connections and stuff. It's just it's it's, it's invaluable. Yeah. Uh, you know, particularly if you need to ask for help, you can only make such a compelling ask over email. Yeah, <laughs> very true. There is a top end to how compelling an email can be, uh, and uh, an even lower end for text messages. Right. If you are making your asks over text messages at home, that is probably a bad idea. I mean, learn your donor, learn how they communicate and everything, yes. but but probably not a good idea. Written requests of any kind of support are usually the worst kind. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, also sometimes necessary. Uh, so uh, you just mentioned uh, my number one hero. And she's not, uh, I, the unfunded list and invitation only are nonpartisan, but she's not currently running for anything. So I can say that Hillary Clinton is, is probably my biggest role model. Hillary Clinton has been on this yacht, right? Yes. So that that <laughs> that's that uh, that that uh, I do like that. Talk to me a little bit about um, about uh, uh, so you, you you know her much better than I do. Uh, my uh, uh, my mother went to college with her, oh. uh, so um, they they're both very busy women in different fields now. Sure. So uh, they actually see each other at reunions, and that's pretty much it. But uh, talk to me about uh, how you work with Hillary Clinton. You have me wondering if I've ever met your mother now. How She's lovely. I, how did I meet Hillary? I think. Um, my partner, my previous partner, had started a firm that raised money for nonprofits, mm-hmm. and uh, very early on, we had some clients that did work with the White House. So, one of them was involved in clearing landmines. Uh, mm-hmm. There was the African Medical Society and Helen Keller Institute, and so there were uh, some connections to the White House through the firm. And uh, it was an event. I don't remember the specific first time I met Bill or Hillary, to tell you the truth. I'm trying to remember that right now. It's been a long time. But I remember uh, getting to know her much better when she was just before she... Well, I got to know her during the process of raising money for the Clinton Library. So let me back up. President Clinton hired my firm to raise money for his presidential center and library in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And um, Secretary Clinton was not... uh, senator at that time so there were a lot of discussions this is before the you know the she designs planning or running though right uh i don't think it, that i i can't remember i don't know when she, when she started planning i so can't remember when she i can't speak to, to that but uh, they were in a similar place where the obamas are right now sure which was okay we're out of office we got to do this library what are we going to do next and there was a lot of conversation about uh what the president was going to do and you have to remember, he was the president. The focus was on him. Yes. Hillary was the, the past first lady, and talking about her running for center or anything really wasn't the big deal. The big mm-hmm. deal was what was Bill Clinton going to do, and he was the you know he was the he was the focus of the nation at that point. Yes. As we went through the process of starting to raise money and uh, work on the library, I got to know her better, and was uh, then she was elected to the Senate, and. I would come on occasion to D.C. and see her to talk about certain situations or see them at events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I remember, uh, you know, when she started running for the Senate, there were, uh, you know, of course, as you, I really admire her. So I was trying to do what I could to help her in the ways that I could mm-hmm. as well in her Senate thing. But I typically stay away from politics. I don't, 
do a lot of political. I mean, stuff. she obviously she's a, a politician, but there is there's a lot more to her. She is she supports things that are that are apolitical that, that that everybody would support. She and her husband are two of the greatest humanitarians that ever have been. Uh, uh, agreed. Uh, so uh, now that CGI has uh, has closed its doors, do I understand that correctly? Yes. Uh, do you think there will be something to to take its place? I think a lot of people will try to duplicate some of the things. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think there's an opportunity for the Obama Foundation to, to pick up some of that mantle. Uh, whether or not they decide that's what they want to do, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I think, again, they're probably still at that phase of what the heck are we going to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I still wouldn't count the Clintons out. I think there's still life left in them, and mm -hmm. I think there's still time for them to regroup and and in a thoughtful way, try to reconstitute some of their philanthropy in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, their philanthropy hasn't gone away, by the way. The Clinton Foundation still exists. It yes, still yes. Does, it still does and wonderful. And they can still raise money, I assume. Yeah, then they do wonderful work around the world. They're focusing more on the United States right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a, a, a willingness to, to do more. Uh, and I think there's uh, you know, some really good people thinking about that. Uh, so I do remember uh, when I first met President Clinton, uh, I was at a Wellesley reunion with my father, uh, and I can tell you that the, the most useless thing at a Wellesley reunion is a father and son. <laughs> and so we were predictably standing in the, I was very young, but I do remember this, uh, mostly because we've retold the story a lot. Uh, but we were standing in the bar area, and my father was uh, having a drink with two other uh, uh, guys. <laughs> uh, and he had just got, he's a professor, he was a professor at Colby College, and he, had, he was talking about his research, he had just gotten tenure, uh, and I think he, you know, he's talking to these two guys. I think he realizes maybe he's talking too much about himself. Uh, so he turns to one and he says, uh, you know, and, and Calvin, what do you do? And Calvin says, I'm the halfback for the Dallas Cowboys. Because <laughs> uh, so Janet Hill was in the same class. Okay. Uh, married to Calvin Hill was a, uh, an all-star halfback and his son, Grant Hill, uh, an NBA all-star. Uh, so my dad, who has a very dry sense of humor, uh, goes, oh, that's very interesting. And just turns to the other guy and says... And Bill, what do you do? And he says, I'm the governor of Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, the good old, that was the good old days. That was the good old days. That was a lot of fun. I'm sure they were really interested to hear about, I mean, they were very patiently listening to my dad's research about, I think at the time he was uh, writing his book about Noah Webster, oh. which is somewhat interesting, right? And if you want to read, if you ever want to read a biography of Noah Webster, there's a great one out there written by my father. Great. Uh, and if you're, if you're having, you're struggling to go to sleep at night, that's what I, that's what I would recommend. He has other books that are more interesting. What do you think about, about uh, I know we'll, we'll move on from politics in a moment, but just, just one more question. What do you think about our current president? Well, I've known, our, you know, I've, I've met Donald Trump. I wouldn't say I know him, but I've, I've met him mm -hmm. many times over the years, especially when uh, Secretary Clinton was running for senator. Mm. He was very uh, he supportive. Made he, he did fundraisers in his apartment. Really? Uh, I remember one specific fundraiser where we were in his apartment in Trump Tower, and it was the Indian Americans. There was probably, I don't know, 100, 150 really excited people to see Donald and the, secre uh, the, 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 you know, the candidate at the time. Yeah. And then we, I remember going down Trump Tower to different people's apartments to say hello with, with Donald and Hillary uh -huh. and uh, raising money. Like ringing doorbells, I think they, they were. They knew <laughs> they knew were you were on their yeah, way. <laughs> I, think they, I, I think it was prearranged, uh, and I remember that uh, he didn't like to shake hands and kept Purell in his pocket. Really, he didn't want to. He didn't want to touch people. That's hmm. what I remember. Yeah. Hmm. Um, fascinating. Uh, so, so um, um, uh, just to, to transition out of politics, how, uh, for the nonprofits out there, which is a lot of the people who listen. Uh, who, you know, their missions and their status require them to be non-political. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, you know, there's a lot going on that might be affecting the work that they're doing. Uh, how would you suggest to, uh, you know, groups out there, you know, like Atlas War, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, how do they approach the, the political climate of today? Well, I mean, Atlas Corps has a, a, certainly a, a unique set of circumstances that are very much affected by politics. Yes. Um, so, you know, nonprofits can advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's not illegal. Mm -hmm. um, but when they start reaching into the political arena, then there are other mechanisms that uh, people can use to do that. 
um, you know, 501c3 is a very specific designation for a nonprofit, and uh, I know that the Trump administration has been trying to move that needle a little bit so that there can be more political activism within nonprofits, which I, I, I'm totally against, by the way. But I think if uh, an organization uh, wants to push back uh, to help itself, that's one thing. If they're trying to, leaders of a, a nonprofit have political ideas and want to, you know, fight the good fight because mm -hmm. it's something that they morally somehow feel isn't right, I think they should stay out of that. Mm -hmm. I think unless it has a direct effect on the nonprofit, the nonprofit should stay mm -hmm. out of politics. So, uh, but it often can. Uh, just to, to give a quick sample. So my, I founded a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We got, I got my 501c3 letter last month. Yes. And I'm, uh, we're in the pro we're thinking about, you know, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to raise money? How are we mm -hmm. going to do all of these things? Uh, and how vocal am I going to be? How, how much am I going to advocate for certain things? Um, our general mission is to demystify philanthropy and help start up nonprofits with good ideas, improve their grant proposals. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, uh, for, for instance, uh, a lot of them are uh, applying for grants from the NEA or the mm -hmm. NIH or, or NIMH. Uh, and so when the, when the administration talks about uh, cutting those things, mm -hmm. um, I don't see how it would be responsible for me to not say anything about that. Certainly I have to deal with it. We, are, I, we review grant proposals, uh, and many of them are, are being written there, and I'm trying to give them advice for how to get funded by these programs. Sure. Uh, and so when, in, in a, uh, how does, when, you, when you're in an instance like that, and uh, you know, I, I think you know, it's entirely possible that, that conservatives and Trump supporters might support the work that I'm doing, right? The, the, but um, uh, so how, how can you, because I think you, uh, you have a, a political mindset, uh, and uh, you know, I've even fundraised for, for candidates, but I also think that you're still capable of having relationships and fundraising, with, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, with people with different mindsets. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the secret to, to being able to do it? Because I often turn off people of different political so you, persuasions. You, <laughs> so there, there is a, there's a, you know, you as an individual can advocate for anything you want. That's, mm -hmm. that's part of the great thing of being in the United States of America. I agree. Uh, but if you start to use the resources of a nonprofit, mm -hmm. Or when you are acting as a leader of a nonprofit, then you have a different set of uh, standards that you have to abide by. Mm -hmm. So you, Dave Moss, can turn off as many people as you want to uh, can and do. while you're by yourself. <laughs> but you have to put on your nonprofit hat every once in a while and say, okay, maybe i got to rein some of that stuff in because it's better for the nonprofit. Although part of your personality is part of why people are supporting your nonprofit. So it, it can be a little convoluted. I love Thank the way I that. love the way you operate in the world, and I would <laughs> not change you in any way, shape, or form. Thank you. Uh, thank you for saying that. For everybody who says that, there is somebody who says, Dave, you need to change in this specific way. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll let you guess who I listen to more. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so you, uh, uh, a long time ago, I worked uh, uh, for a firm that did donor advising. One of our, one of the people we advised was uh, uh, Jonathan Lewis, Jonathan D., uh, Peter Lewis's son. Uh, he made some large gifts to human rights campaigns and, and other, this was 2006 or so, and his main issue was uh, uh, gay marriage, which uh, has been, uh, was, was one of the reasons why I wanted to go work there. Uh, you've worked on, on LGBT issues. Uh, I believe, I don't believe that's something I've uh, covered on the podcast so far. Uh, it's been an exciting, uh, particularly the last uh, 10, 12 years, uh, pretty exciting uh, field to work on with some, you know, some big advancements. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about what you've done in that field and what you're, what you're currently working on. Uh, well, you know, I didn't have much of a choice because uh, as I grew up, I was uh, always who I am. I mm -hmm. never uh, was someone who hid that. And so I had a stepfather who was very homophobic. Mm. And that caused me a lot of trouble. But that only made me more determined. And then when I was in high school... Uh, that was at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and the, the big scare. And uh, I had a cousin who became very ill very quickly in San Diego. Um, they didn't know what it was, but I, the doctors and the nurses wouldn't even go in his room. So his sister and I were the only two that would go into the room and help him. And that really solidified my thoughts in terms of, you know, number one, there was a lot of fear there, right? And so I, I was dealing with that and my friends and, and on, a, on a national scare uh, level, it was pretty high. You know, in, 
And I remember the conversations about New York and San Francisco and not wanting to talk, even talk to anybody who'd come from New York or San Francisco. This is sort of the epicenters of this, whatever was happening. So that, it also made me very angry. Yeah. And uh, shortly thereafter, I graduated from high school. And right after I graduated high school, I went to New York City. And, you know, I got involved on a personal level and on some organized levels uh, in terms of uh, gay rights movements, right? So uh, I would go to marches. Uh, I would make uh, friends and family come to the gay parade when uh, it was very difficult for them to be seen at the parade. So Mm -hmm. uh, I I had some wonderful next-door neighbors, uh, the Wassermans, who are uh, just wonderful people. But... uh, you know, they would come to the parade with us. And I knew that that, uh, on some level for them, was a little uncomfortable. But uh, after a while, they became some of the big, biggest advocates. So, mm-hmm. you know, that history of not wanting to repress who I am and the ability, you know, I've, I've got a tremendous amount of white privilege in my life, too. So <laughs> Same. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was never afraid in a way that maybe some of our other brothers and sisters mm-hmm. uh, are. Um, but I also, uh, because of my upbringing and being able to go into a room, was very confident that I could get in any situation and, and, and make it work for me. Mm-hmm. So yes. uh, the LGBT stuff started very young. Uh, I started working with the gay men's health crisis when I was very young, when it first started. You know, uh, got involved with fundraising there. Uh, and then we did a concert at Carnegie Hall with Pavarotti and Leonard Bernstein and all nice. these great things. It was just like this, for me, was just this wonderful acknowledgement that there were people other than gay people who were really interested in this. And that was, you know, it really fueled the fire of all the gay causes and LGBT causes that I work on now. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so I am, I am heterosexual, but I absolutely love Pride. I think that's one of my favorite events. It's very meaningful for me because uh, so I grew up in Maine where there is uh, one way to be a heterosexual man, <laughs> and it's not a. It's uh, I would view it as sort of toxic masculinity, mm. uh, and it was never really uh, even though I am heterosexual, interested in women, not really in the same way that uh, that it was expected of uh, of young men. There, it's very uh, mm-hmm. lumber, this is where lumberjacks come from, right? We literally have a lumberjack on our state flag. Uh, There's a lot of gay lumberjacks out there. Yeah, yeah, but the. Uh, so in reality, lumberjacks are very diverse people. But the, yes. I'm talking about the like the, perce- right. the perception of what they should be, right? The, from, mm-hmm. the, from people who are not lumberjacks. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things, you know, uh, for me about pride is, uh, and I, you also grow up in Maine with uh, hearing a lot of stereotypes about mm-hmm. how gay people are. Basically, there's only one type of mm-hmm. gay person uh, as well. And you go to pride and you find out that no, there's there's it seems to be all about the fact that you could there's lots of different ways uh, <laughs> to. <laughs> To be both homosexual and heterosexual, uh, it was, it, it's just very meaningful for me to see everybody out there. We just had it here. Did you, did you attend the parade here? In I did, and I attended the march the next day. Mm-hmm. And I've been enjoying um, uh, pride-liking comments on Facebook. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you know, there was a day that celebrating these things was not yeah. as joyous as it is today. It was a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is, It is uh, for me, it is joyous. It, watching... The next generation of youth come up and celebrating, and some of them not even understanding or even remembering or having the institutional knowledge of, of what happened before them. But it gives me a great sense of satisfaction knowing that they don't have to worry about that. Uh, yeah, that must be nice. Uh, and I've heard that from others. The you know people that, that they can just go to Pride and have it be an entirely positive experience for them. Yeah. That even their families are supportive of them going there. I mean, that's yeah. and in a very short amount of time. I mean, the. the the needle can move very fast in a generation on on issues, uh, and um, uh, and that's you know that stuff's great. And I think uh, one area where I'd like to see the needle move very fast is something that I know you care about, and that's uh, criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm aware that you work on that, but mm-hmm. uh, I've never I don't think I've, I'm, uh, I really have no idea what you do on that front. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you? I mean, that's something that's uh, especially uh, this week, and I think it's it's worthwhile to say his name. Uh, Flando Castile, mm-hmm. uh, his murderer was set free this week. I mean, uh, and that's uh, I, that's pretty hard for people to stomach. I can see how they might think that we don't have rule of law in this country mm-hmm. as a result of that. Uh, and I'm starting to suspect that, that may be true. Uh, so, what are you doing to, um, to to bring that back to make sure that, that murderers go to jail? Well, so let me 
back up for a second. Uh, I was always sort of seen as the LGBT activist guy, mm -hmm. right? And that kind of always bothered me because I'm not just LGBT, I'm other things too, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I got an invitation uh, from the White House uh, to go to an event. It was a criminal justice reform event. I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't know why. I, and I, I just assumed that somebody, a person that I knew in the White House had sent that invitation. Mm -hmm. And I called her and I said, hi, uh, you know, great. Thanks for inviting me to this thing. What is it? And she, she said, I didn't invite you, but if you're in town, I will all set up a, a private briefing for you. So I met with uh, some senior leadership, senior leadership at the White House and they briefed me about what was going on in mass incarceration and criminal justice reform. And this was after a sort of a, a spate of uh, shootings and uh, Black Black Lives Matter was very active in the uh, public sort of domain at that point. I sat there listening to the briefing and hearing about the work that the folks at the White House were doing and seeing the passion and I really, you know, I went into the oh what can I do to help mode and I realized I didn't want to get stuck down working in you know, individual organizations but I wanted to, there was, there was a much larger conversation that needed to be had in our country and there's a much larger problem than just each of these individual things that people are working on. So reentry, recidivism, you know, uh, jobs, whatever those things are. I didn't want to get involved in that stuff. I wanted to raise the sort of conversation to how can I help on a more national scale. And so I started uh, doing some convenings. I did a convening at George Washington University uh, with the dean of the medical school there and a group of philanthropists and activists. And then I took them over to the White House, and we had a briefing there and did some meetings. And I went to a lot of briefings and meetings at the White House, and nothing happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so as I progressed through this sort of, you know, point of worrying about my friends who were friends of color, literally worried that at night when they were driving home in Texas mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, maybe I was overreacting a little bit, but there were times that I was sitting back and thinking, you know, all this work we did on LGBT and how organized the, the LGBT movement was, how does, how can we do that with mass incarceration? I mm. said, you know, the LGBT people are probably already dealing with mass incarceration and inclined to help. Mm -hmm. So I started calling my friends and I said, how about we move the LGBT movement infrastructure towards mass incarceration and criminal justice reform? Help them. We may not always agree with them. There may be things that we're not really geared or wired to, to work with, mm -hmm. but we have a communications arm. It's called LAD. We have mm -hmm. relationships with state legislatures. Uh, and this, this all happened after the Trump administration started to come into power because I realized nothing's going to happen when it, with the Jeff Sessions in, in the attorney Probably not. So state-based work that we have to do. I stayed in touch with the president's team uh, and have worked with them. Uh, and they've been very helpful about helping me get the right people to convene. And so I got nothing but positive responses from both sides. I've been doing on a, That's great. a lot of the leaders in both movements have really agreed that they would like to, to come together somehow and work together to build a national movement in yeah. mass incarceration. That could be very powerful. I sure I hope so. I hope so. Uh, it reminds me a little bit, something that I, that I like to think about a lot. Uh, so I'm, I'm, Jewish and they, heterosexual. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, there's, there, there are. There's many of us. The uh, but the uh, like you said, the the LGBT uh, community because they've had to advocate so fiercely for themselves have an infrastructure now. Mm -hmm. uh, like you mentioned, there's different communications arms and other things. And I believe even uh, do, uh, do I remember correctly? You were involved in the, the the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. Yes, networking business leaders and, and, mm -hmm. and things of that sort. The same. The, the Jewish community is is very well organized and and. And almost disproportionately powerful. It's something we mm -hmm. get criticism for, uh, and have, and they have been able. They, they uh, famously have worked with the civil rights. They worked with the civil rights movement uh, in the '60s, uh, mostly as donors and, mm -hmm. and activists, because it, they understood and they had the infrastructure, and that became sure. very powerful partnerships. And so right. that's quite meaningful for me. Uh, no, I was on the board of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and I think for me, those years on that board really showed me how you build a movement, in, yeah, in, and you really, uh, in a very thoughtful way, can help change the dialogue in a nation. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, civil society, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's terrific. You mentioned earlier on you um, 
grew up, you said, in a Navy family? Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my uh, grandfather was a dentist on a battleship oh, in wow. Guantanamo Bay. Your teeth are lovely. <laughs> uh, uh, they, could, they, they could be a little bit better. But uh, So I know that you do some work with veterans. Does, yes. that, uh, does that come from uh, being raised in a military family? or? Yeah, it, it, it started there. Um, and then it started uh, with a lot of my friends in the military. Uh, I have a home in California that's close to a Marine Corps base, and I have a lot of friends who are the Marines. And when they started going to Iraq, yeah, in the first Iraq War, it was very difficult for me, very difficult for them. Yes. Uh, and then they started coming back, mm. and the PTSD that I was seeing in my friends mm. was really bad, and it made me really want to do more. And so in the same way that I approach everything else, I'm like, okay, I don't want to get down in the weeds. How am I going to elevate this to make sure that we maximize what we can do here? And so in uh, 2006, I think it was 2006, I was at an event for Tammy Duckworth. She was running at that time, the first time she ran. And we were at Fred Hawkbird's apartment, who used to be the head of the uh, Exim Bank here in the United States. And then at the time he wasn't, but... Anyway, and Hillary was there. Oh, lovely. And uh, Didis Chang, who had just started working with the Hillary organization, who became her finance chair for her presidential campaign, was mm-hmm. there. And there was this guy in there that it was clearly military to me. I, you know, I could spot them a mile away. And I, I was like, what is he doing here? And now Tammy is, is you know, uh, obviously a veteran. Mm-hmm. And uh, I struck up a conversation with him, and we went out afterwards, and... He started talking about his need to want to help get veterans elected. The light bulb went off, and he started an organization called Vote Vets. I've heard of that. And uh, asked me to be on his advisory board, and I said yes. And, you know, it went from this little organization to now they're really making a very good impact on a lot of congressional, senate, and otherwise campaigns. Um, And uh, I think one of our proudest moments was that Donald Trump banned us on Twitter two days ago. So, that, so he uh, this is an organization that represents veterans, and yes. uh, and the president banned it on Twitter. Yes, he okay. has stifled five hundred thousand veterans. Sure we were clear yeah, that that's what happened. You know, free speech is not something that uh, should be messed with lightly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's actually probably an argument um, to be made that he can't do that. Um, He's but, not going to listen. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm not going to go over there and make that argument myself, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, hopefully someone does. Now that's good. Keep up the, the good work, I think. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there were some... So I graduated high school in the year 2000 mm-hmm. uh, from a high school that had a, a long tradition of sending uh, our graduates to work in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, in Maine, there's a... What is it called? Bath? There's a, a naval ship, a large shipyard there mm-hmm. that, built, that builds boats and, and several mm-hmm. bases. And at the time, there was even Loring Air Force Base. Right. We had a lot of uh, nukes pointed at Moscow. Right. There. And uh, these were great jobs. And in 2000, we hadn't been in a war in a very long time, and it didn't look like it looked like possibly we weren't ever going. I sure. remember thinking that that there we were, America is done going to war. Right. Uh, and uh, the mills were all closing down, so those shops were gone. So a lot of boys, I think it was over half of the guys in my class joined the military, and a lot of the women as well. Mm. Uh, and you're right. The you know, some of them came back missing limbs and stuff. And in some ways, they are the lucky ones. It's the ones that came back with the significant PTSD and other and other uh, emotional issues. And you know, so and I think there were some some reasons to get engaged in those conflicts. Mm-hmm. But the, it is certainly true that some things went wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and even more true that the perspective of people who have been there is is going to be crucial to have in our government. So mm-hmm. that's very important work. Hopefully, uh, other influential people block you on Twitter as well as you keep going forward, <laughs> yeah. and that you have other successes yeah, sure. with it as well. Uh, Wayne has handed me something that I I'm I believe I understand. I'm, I'm to ask you about the floating clinic in Africa. Oh, Lake Tanganyika Floating Health Clinic. Yeah, uh, tell me about Amy that. Lehman, Amy Lehman is a, uh, a sheer uh, force of will power that I have very rarely encountered. Yeah. I first met her uh, when I was at an uh, event. A friend of mine was a photographer, an artist and a photographer. He had gone on an excursion uh, to Lake Tanganyika with Amy and was photographing Apparently their boat sank, and it was all, it was all kinds of things that happened. And I'm hearing this story, and at the end of it was, and can she meet President Clinton? And I was like, 
sure she probably could. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, we were doing an event at MoMA. Uh, we, every year we used to, at, at uh, the Clean Global Initiative, we, the, the board of MoMA would let us use MoMA for a dinner. And oh, uh, nice. all the attendees from CGI would come in. And we would go to MoMA and just wander around sipping cocktails. And uh, somehow I got Amy uh, access to come in. And we got to, to know each other. And I sat down and, and learned about the work that she was doing there and how she uh, basically has a clinic on a boat and goes around and reaches your rural areas that have no health services whatsoever. And she's helping people. And she's a fierce advocate for it and, you know, has every year increased her support and is doing really, really wonderful things in the world. So, so, I so it's on, what body of water does it travel Lake on? Tanganyika, which is something like the second largest body of fresh water in the world. It's, it's, it's Where like, in Africa? Right in the middle. So, I, don't wanna, <laughs> I don't know where it is it, either. It borders, on, <laughs> it borders on several different countries. And, um, I it's, think I can picture it on the map. You mean like bullseye in yeah, the middle, if you just right? look, it's, it, you, it's, it's not yeah well it's a, it's a big lake yeah I see it from space and everything uh, and, and there's just a full clinic on this on this boat yeah I think you know they, they put as many services as they can on it you know because I have a boat uh, there's not a clinic on this boat uh, we have a, a really good first aid kit <laughs> um, well, I'll be I'll be careful I have epi kits <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I introduced her to our naval architect, and we talked about trying to raise money to build a bigger boat and yeah. things of that nature. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, uh, I, as she grows and the organization is growing, uh, she really is somebody who, in a very real way, knows the, uh, that area of the world really well and the, what the people need. That's great. Is there a, an organization behind it? or The Lake Tanganyika Floating Health Clinic. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I don't, I've never... I've never heard of that. That's really yeah. interesting. Um, well, you should meet Amy. And I'd love I, to. I would, I would, I would admonish you to interview her as well because she's really dynamic. I think you'll, you'll find her very interesting. Uh, terrific. So I have um, a few more, uh, a few more questions to get here. Which historical figure do you admire most? Feel free to go all the way. Feel free to go to ancient Greece or wherever you'd like. Wow. It's a hard one because there's so many. I love history too. You can take your time. I can. Okay. Let me think about that for a second. Just one. Feel free to go <laughs> um, for more. It's your interview. You can answer how you'd like. You know, it depends on what genre you're talking about, right? Um, you know, I realize it's a broad question. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, you think about it. You know, you think of you know, is it an LGBT? Is it technology? Is it you know, mm -hmm. the founding of a country? Is it you know, Europe, you know, so, you know, I, I always admired Winston Churchill because sure. I always thought that he was somebody who, not because of what he did in World War II, which was great, but he was somebody who nobody believed in mm. and he kept getting knocked down and he kept coming back and he believed in himself and he believed in what he was doing so much that he saved Europe. And so that was one person that I thought was really interesting. Certainly somebody, that's certainly somebody to, yeah, to sure. admire, yes. Yeah. Equally broad question. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your favorite piece of literature? A poem, novel? I love poetry by Rupert Brooks. Hmm. I, I know he was a, uh, he was a, uh, he was in the World War and had a very difficult life. Um, so his poetry is really good. And someone who works for me here uh, is a, a poet and she teaches really? poetry and, and is published. And so I love poetry. So I like mm -hmm. that. You still read poetry? Hmm. Do you write any? I'm not really good at writing poetry now. I think one of the things about poetry is that even if you, even the people, the worst poet in the world should be writing poetry. You don't have to read your poems to other people, but right. I, mean, I write poems uh, mm -hmm. myself, um, uh, mostly haikus, because I like oh. the uh, structure to it. Mm -hmm. It's not something I share with other people, it's just a, uh, uh, to keep my brain sharp, Sure. I guess. Uh, and generally, I think everybody should find a, a, some art that, that they do. Of course. Uh, and again, and then you don't have, there's fine art, right? Mm -hmm. And every, we can have an appreciation for that. We can go to museums and look at it. But I think something that gets overlooked a lot is that it, it doesn't all have to be good, right? In fact, mm -hmm. most art's terrible. Sure. Even a lot of fine art is terrible. <laughs> it's all perspective. It's sure, all perspective. someone likes any piece of art, right? Even my yeah. terrible art I make, I'm sure my mother likes it. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sure she does. <laughs> or she'll tell you she does. Well, and yeah. it's meaningful to her. She yeah, understands where right. exactly. my son he made has this, to, of course. wrote this terrible We all have those. I actually have <laughs> my, my previous partner and I, uh, he had two daughters when we met. And I actually have framed a, uh, a watercolor that one of the girls had mm-hmm. made, which mm, sure. most people look at it like, what the heck is that? And I'm like, I think it's gorgeous. So, yes. I also have a framed picture that my, my grandmother, who has passed, uh, that she painted. She used to paint when oh. she was young. Uh, and it's, so it's a girl on a swing, mm-hmm. but she painted the, uh, the rope of the swing too long. So she's on the back swing. And you can tell clearly that she's just going to smash it to the ground. Oh, no. <laughs> and that gave you amusement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's my grandmother. I mean, nobody would be interested in this because it, um, looks, it looks like this girl's about to really seriously hurt herself. I think your grandmother did that on purpose. <laughs> Maybe she, perhaps she did. I think actually my cousin Annie has that painting now. Uh, but, you know, the, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's meaningful. To, and I'm sure it was, you know, a, a good exercise for her. If I remember correctly, uh, you, you guys were involved in the, in the design of this wonderful yacht that we're on yeah my partner john evans is very very involved in this yacht uh he hired a naval architect and designed it from the the bottom up and then it just went through a refit of two years where they cut the back off and we added nine feet and Mm -hmm. redid the whole thing Mm -hmm. i remember before that one of my only criticism was that it it should be nine feet longer this yacht is nine feet too short Uh (laughs) well you know so I'm glad to right. hear that. Now it's perfect. <laughs> yes, it's just right. It is great. How how uh, how much of the year do you spend on the yacht versus on land? Well, the the boat uh, I call it the boat uh, sits outside of our house in Fort Lauderdale in the winter, and then it sits about a block away from our house in uh, Sag Harbor in Long Island, New York. Uh, we use it four to five times a week. Uh, there's a chef here, so we don't go out to restaurants much. We eat on the boat, so we take the boat out for dinner a lot. So mm. it's just a, it's part of our lifestyle, but mm-hmm. it's also, uh, you know, a wonderful way for us to relax and mm-hmm. get away from it all. Uh, and a great fundraising vehicle, literally. literally. Yeah, no, I mean, you get them on the boat, give them a martini, and say you can't get off until you write a check. Otherwise, you have to swim. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that... that um... They don't, they're not going to want to swim, especially after a martini. Not in the, and probably not, not in the Potomac. Either. Not in the Potomac. No. <laughs> uh, just a few more questions. Sure. Uh, what do you, what's the most exciting thing going on in philanthropy right now? In the, in the world of uh, Atlas Corps, there's a lot of consolidation that's probably going to happen soon. How do you mean consolidation? Well, I think there's a, there's a, a, a lot of talk about organizations merging. Hmm. Um, hmm. So that's interesting to me. Uh, and so I've been you know, thinking a lot about mergers lately and how does an organization keep its assets when it's moving into something else. Very challenging. Um, yeah, there's a lot of organizations starting out of uh, the need for people to understand how philanthropy works and, mm. you know, uh, yeah. I see philanthropy in a little bit different way because I remember it before computers. So for me, it's a very bas- basic relationship building type of uh, mm-hmm. uh, philosophy. But there's a lot of technology that's coming in, and oh, I'm going to make this easier for you. I don't know if that's exciting or disturbing, um, but uh, yeah, a little of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. I think technology is helpful in some ways. I one of the things I worry about with the with the things like um, you know, crowd ra- uh, crowd raising and some of the peer to peer fundraising we can do online, and some of the newer tech things in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I personally worry about cannibalization. Uh, you know, you can, so if uh, somebody starts a fundraiser on Facebook, mm. right, and they ask you for $15, mm. you were planning to give $100, but you give the 15 because it was easier, and then you end up not making that gift down the road. Well, the other thing about that is that the, the people who are giving the money, you know, so when we did the Clinton Library, the first thing they did was uh, a mailer where they uh, asked for donations. They raised a lot of money. Okay? Yeah, you still can uh, from and, mailers. Right. And still so works. direct mail is a really great way to, to get people initially started mm-hmm. and then you can use that as a way to sort of build your your base uh, and I see the Facebook thing being something like that mm-hmm. uh, so if I was going to give mm-hmm. 100 and I only give 15 that's in my mind that's I still have $85 to give to somewhere else then mm-hmm. um, but at the same time uh, I wonder if people are really building the relationship with the organization in the way otherwise mm-hmm. that they would otherwise do mm-hmm. that's it because that's that's very important people aren't going to keep giving unless right they... you get that one time $15 is uh, well, I've already done that. You know, you go to the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the biggest problem that mm-hmm. you think today's philanthropist could recently solve? HIV. Yeah. yeah. 
that can be solved tomorrow. Yeah, how would we do that? If you got everybody on antiretrovirals, you would uh, have herd immunity and nobody would contract HIV anymore. So, uh, everybody would need to take the... Anybody who is HIV positive, oh. if they were on the antiretrovirals, and those who are possibly, uh, you know, going to be infected were on uh, prophylaxis, like Truvada or something like that, you could be done with HIV very quickly. What is preventing that from happening? Money. money. How much money would you need to... Billions. I mean, the HIV therapies are very expensive. Mm. Uh, Secretary Clinton did a uh, report on it five or six years ago where they, they talked about this. And in the beginning, I, I'm on the board of advisors for Dr. Gala who discovered the HIV virus and is working on a vaccine for HIV. Mm. And a vaccine, even if it, if it works, is still going to be years out. So you've got to do something in the meantime. Uh, but they have drugs now that can take the virus and suppress it in a person's body so they can't give it to somebody else. And if you were able to do that with everybody who had HIV, nobody else would have contracted it. Within a generation, it would be gone. Mm. So there's that you know, theoretical way to do it. And then there's the, you know, get the vaccine and do it that way too. But that's still not here yet. Uh, well, that's, that's very promising. And you, but you, th you think it will be? You think we're going to do that? I think eventually we'll get to there. Uh, I think we will. I certainly hope so, and that we solve a lot of other our science, problems. Our science is improving <laughs> in ways, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a scientist and, and, and not the smartest guy in the room, but... In, uh, perhaps in this room. Well, probably, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, Selma's but, in this room, other yeah, than Sel Selma. Selma's the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> no, I love Selma. Um, but, uh, you know, when I go to these uh, advisory board meetings for Dr. Gale and the scientists are talking, I find myself saying, okay... Could you explain this in human terms? <laughs> and I realize that they are really making, I mean, on a very molecular level, they're making changes mm -hmm. to us. Uh, yeah, no, very, very exciting. Um, thanks. This was great. Uh, thanks for, again, for inviting me onto the Waterford. Always a pleasure to be here. Sure. Uh, and thanks for the conversation. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for listening to this episode of Open Door Philanthropy featuring Steve Wozencraft. As always, if you're willing to provide helpful and candid feedback on unfunded grant proposals, please sign up at unfundedlist.com.